Our scripture this morning is from Romans 8, verses 8 and 12 to 14. Romans 8, 5 and 12 to 14. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. But if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Today there's almost a universal conviction that when it comes to spirituality, sin always wins. Think about it. I want to say it again. When it comes to spirituality, most people today believe that sin almost always wins. Even within the Christian church. (laughs) Being Christ-like is considered down deep in the heart of most people, even Christians, to be an impossibility. The life that Jesus came to invite us to live is now considered beyond the reach of almost everybody. Something horrible has happened in Christianity when you think about that. Children should just grow up kind of believing that the kind of life that Jesus lived And the kind of life the great Christians of all history lived. What's that? Okay. The kind of life that all Christians have lived throughout history is beyond their reach and they will never attain it. That needs to sink in. That's really serious. The power of sin is believed is just too strong. It has penetrated too far. It has affected so many of ourselves that we are programmed so completely towards sin that it's impossible for us to live a life free of it. That's astounding. But I believe that's true as far as the perceptions of people are today. Even a lot of us, if we look inside our own lives, I think that we would doubt that we would be able ever to live the kind of life that Jesus was advocating. We do not see ourselves doing that. We see ourselves more of a failure in Christianity and are hoping that God can just forgive us but not live the life that Jesus was promising. That's pretty astounding. Even God, we have come to believe, is not up to this task. 
The belief has crippled our ability to hear. When Scripture is open before us and we read words that hold out the promises of God and His actual statements where He uh, pledges Himself to us to live the kind of Christian life, somehow those words just float in and out of our ears and they don't stay. They just escape. And somehow we have conditioned ourselves, and maybe it's a group condition as well, where we feel as though, even though we don't think about it, those words don't, they're not talking about me. We feel that we are destined to chronic moral failure and spiritual defeat. This spiritual deafness that doesn't allow God's words to even get in and change our hearts on that is very selective. Because there are other passages in the Scripture that we grasp to very strongly and believe in absolutely and completely in. So when the Bible says the flesh sets its desire uh, against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh... We believe that. And we say, that's true, that's me. You hearing what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is, the scripture passages that tell us that we're defeated, we say, that's true. But the passages that tell us that we should be able to live a life of spiritual victory and be able to do what the greats of all history have been able to do, that doesn't talk about me. I don't fit in that crowd. You think I'm wrong? No. You don't. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate what he said. Jeremiah told us the heart is more deceitful uh, than all else and desperately sick. And who could understand it? We say amen to that. Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Mm. Strange things are happening. We actually take comfort in the words of Jesus when he said, The human spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we say, God understands my condition, therefore. It's acceptable. That's okay. I won't get into heaven by, you know, having any kind of a track word or record of doing great things for the Lord. I will get in lowest common denominator. What I'm saying is the last day church, I'm talking no matter which denomination you're talking about, clear across the planet, has taken a nosedive on what it actually is setting as itself, its hope, its aspirations, and its faith. And that is an extremely serious situation. Let me tell you a story that we all know that I think will maybe illustrate what I'm trying to say. It's a story of a woman in the Bible. And it's she's called a sinful woman. 
And you can find it in Luke chapter 7. Probably you ought to open your Bibles and look at it. Follow it along as I tell the story. Luke chapter 7, verse 37, and onward to verse 50. Luke 7, 37 to 50. And here is what it says. Um, Behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, whose house? Simon's house. (laughs) Brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with her hairs of her head and kissed his feet. Dean mentioned this, or it was mentioned during Sabbath school class this morning. And anointed the feet with the ointment. This was very expensive ointment. A sinner going to Jesus and just pouring out her love for this man. That's all it was. She hoped to gain nothing. She just wanted to show how precious Jesus was to her. That's what it was all about. And now when the Pharisees, which had uh, bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Simon, I have somewhat to say to you. And he said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, and one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? And what I want to propose to all of you is that our Lord and Savior said that the test of Christianity, the evidence of Christianity, and Christianity is based upon what? I want to make a suggestion to you here. It's based upon what the Holy Spirit, the degree and power of the Holy Spirit that exists in a person's heart. That's the acid test of Christianity. The Holy Spirit will draw us to Christ. The Holy Spirit will accomplish all that the Lord wants us to do and to be. And the Holy Spirit's greatest evidence is love. Teaches us to be loving and a unity and a fellowship. And so, it says here, um, where did I leave off? Saying, uh, tell, tell, tell him, tell me therefore which one loveth him most. And Simon answered and said, well, I suppose that he to whom had been forgiven most. And he said to him, thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, seest thou this woman I entered into thine house, Simon's house, and thou gavest me no water, for my feet. But she had washed my feet with tears. That's interesting. You were talking about tears in Sabbath school class. And I thought about the, what tears mean. And tears are basically the reservoir that shows how deep the feelings are. And she was just pouring out every ounce of her feelings to Jesus Christ. Bathing his feet, his head, with her tears. My. My. Um, she hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil does not anoint. You didn't do it. But this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. 
And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. That's an amazing story. And when you look at this woman, and you look where she had been, and you look where she actually went, you can see the entire landscape of mankind, our sinful journey. And she went all the way this direction into sin. And because of what? She went all the way this way. What was it? The story is a little bit like this. Her name is Mary. We know that she had a sister named Martha and a brother, Lazarus. And they lived just across the valley outside of Jerusalem on the hill of Bethany. And um, somehow, for some reason, not untypical of any of us, for some reason, this Mary, things started going bad for her. And she left Bethany, and we know that for a while she lived on that little coastal town called Magdala. And there uh, she had the beginnings of all kinds of problems. Somewhere in his journeys, Jesus found Mary of Magdala now, and she had spirits of demons. That's going pretty far in that direction, right? And Jesus found her, and what did he do? He cast out the demons and gave her freedom. That just simply opened up her eyes. But that wasn't enough. She still had problems and she continued to go in a direction that was not too favorable. And as I think about so many people around the planet today, their lives, they just can't seem to get out of being stuck in the rut. And that's the way she was. And pretty soon she was committing prostitution. I don't think she wanted to be there, but she didn't know how to get out. She had met a man who actually cast out her evil demons. And I don't think that thought of Jesus ever left her. And the next thing we know about her, she's the one that was dragged in and thrown at the feet of Jesus, a prostitute. And they were trying to entrap Jesus. Is he going to stand up for the law of Moses, which says she should be stoned? Or what is he going to do? And Jesus refused to play that game. I always think about this. How come Jesus was so absolutely smart and could do everything just right and figure out? There was a Spirit of God dwelling inside of him. And he knew what to do. And instead of falling into that snare and that trap, what Jesus simply did was a masterpiece. You remember There was sand on the ground and he knelt down and he began to write in the sand little finger letters. And they wondered what he was writing. And when they stooped over and looked at the words that he was writing in the sand, one by one, those people that were looking down got red-faced and walked away. Because what was Jesus writing in the sand? Yeah! That is really implied in what Jesus says next, right? And so pretty soon they were all gone and this poor broken woman 
who didn't know how to free herself and go to that place where, oh, she, if she could, she could fly off and go to that better way of living. She didn't know how to get there. There was power. Jesus had power. But how was she going to get there? She was in the same spot that so many of us are in today. We feel like that's what we're destined to live like. And Jesus had something altogether in mind, different in mind for that woman. And he looked down and he said, Woman, where are your accusers? And she says, There are none. And he said, I do not accuse you either. Your sins are forgiven. That, that changed that woman's heart. She was freed from such horrible things. And she was loved so thoroughly and she was aware. By the way, was she loved all of her life by God? Her whole life she was loved by God. But at that moment, she understood how much she was loved. And her heart just ruptured in love for Jesus. And it never stopped from that time on. She became a part of a group of women that just made it their commitment to support Jesus and support his disciples. She was the first one at the tomb. She was met the angels at the tomb of Jesus with the foot of the cross, all of that. And she was the one that Jesus talked about that met him and held on to him after he came out of the tomb. And Jesus says, don't hold me back. Is this woman. The closeness between Mary and Jesus was astounding. And oh, what a rich feeling she must have had. Think of where she was. And now where she was. When you have the Spirit of God in your heart, when you've been forgiven and you've been healed, you never want to go back to where you've been. And you know that if God can forgive you and heal you, you know there's no limit to where you can go. With God, all things are possible. And that's the amazing story about spirituality. And it's just, a, it's just something that touches my heart so powerfully. Um, the problem is, the mind set on the flesh is death, and it draws only upon natural human abilities Flesh works by desire. You got that? Flesh just operates by desire. In most of Mary's life, that was what it was. And it can become an obsessive desire, like some of the things you were mentioning in class this morning. It usually is translated in our Bible with this word called lust. Desire basically locks us into the positions where we're at and we no longer can break away from that to actually see that there are other possibilities. We are locked in. Desires are inherently chaotic. They only care about their own needs being satisfied. Desires are deceitful. They promise things that they cannot produce and deliver. And they drive us ever further into the blindness of sensuality, satisfying the senses. I've been there. I've spent a good share of my life been a victim. And I, during those years, 
wondered, why, God, don't you just answer this prayer? I want freedom. I want you to take me away. I want you to kill the desires. I want you to give me a new heart. I can see those verses. You say you will do that. And I would come to the Lord and I would just plead my tears coming down my eyes because I realized if I didn't get victory over this, I think I knew where it was taking me. And the tragedy, it doesn't just take one person. It pulls in families. I thought about my wife. I thought about my mom. I thought about my kids. And it just terrorized me. When a life is controlled by lust and is controlled by desires, it is so powerful and we are reminded of how absolutely, completely weak we are and capable of doing anything. That's Mary Magdalene. And I would plead for the Lord to somehow give me some freedom over this. And it went for months after months and years after years. But in God's time, on a lonely road. Did I ever tell you this story? Have you ever been to the island of Maui? You know there's two mountains <laughs> and a little isthmus in between. And and I remember that was the only straight place that you can drive. <laughs> it wasn't very long. It was a short little distance that you can drive in that isthmus. And I was in my wife's car the little 67 Mustang green. And all of a sudden, God started to talk to me. He was going to change my desires. I didn't know he was going to do it at that time. Why would God come into your life and start doing such significant things when you're driving? On a road. I didn't know anything that was going on around me. I lost total awareness of all my world around me. I was still going down the road. But I was so wrapped up in God at that time. He just came in. He was finally answering my question. And you know what he did? And I think this is what happens with a lot of sinners, including Mary Magdalene. He just let me see. He just very graciously let me see. And this is what he did. He showed me. This is where you're going. There's no way it can be stopped. It's taking you from here and it's going to go all the way. And I had lived in it long enough to know that that was now true. I was a total victim. I couldn't break out from this. And I knew he was right. And I was so angry with God. I didn't want it to go there. And I realized there was nothing that could stop it from going there, I think. I can remember pounding on the steering wheel. I remember crying and I remember calling out to God. I don't know how I stayed on the road. It's not that long. God does amazing things in short periods of time, I guess. And the next thing I remember is that God not only did show me that I was going to hell, and he had to, I think, lead me in my hell long enough over those decade, decade and a half. He had to lead me there long enough for me to finally believe that because I was trying to fix myself. You can't do it. 
And finally I said, God, why aren't you doing something to help me? And some songs started going through, you know, my... Well, before that, God then took me to another place. He showed me actually what it would do to my wife, to my children, and to my mom, who loved me so much. I think He just opened my eyes and helped me to realize what my sins would do to the people that I loved. And somehow that happened to Mary too. And he did it so convincingly that it came out as though it was irrefutable fact. I was believing everything he was saying. And then I just, at the end of that, strange things God does. He just started let children singing in my brain. And the children's songs that, you know, the children sing about how Jesus saves us, no matter, you know, the black and yellow, red or white, you know, all those, the songs, you know. And the themes of those songs is that Jesus is my Savior and He will save me. And I'm thinking, God, <laughs> in my poor little Mustang, crying, beating, you know, He's shown me that it's I can't get out of this thing. He showed me it's going to destroy all the people in my life that's precious to me. And I want to tell you, these are not abstract facts. I'm feeling the effect of all of that. I'm going through all the feelings. And then he starts playing these children's songs. I'm saying, God, what are you doing to me? You're saying you'll save me, but now you say, you know, have you told me all of this? And finally, my mind opens up. And what he did next was so astounding. And I have to tell you what he did next. It was like an awareness. And it was that I couldn't save myself, yet he had promised to be my savior, the children's songs, and all those Bible verses that support that. And finally, a smile came across my face. And I said, God, I finally get it. If you don't save me, I'm holding you responsible because you know right now that I can't do it. And I know that too. I can't do it. And you're trying to communicate to me that you want to do it for me and that I cannot do it. And from that moment on, I've had slips, but from that moment on, it's been an upward path. Victorious path. I think what happened to Mary Magdalene was similar to that. You remember the story of Peter? Lord, I'll, I'll do whatever. You know, I'll always be for you. And Jesus, he knows what's going on. What would it be like to hear all those pledges, you know, and you really know what's going to happen, you know. But finally, and, he, and Jesus failed. I mean, Peter failed. He, he betrayed the Lord. All the disciples fell. But after the Holy Spirit came, tell me what happened to those disciples. Tell me. Let's say it really loud. What happened to the, the church when the Holy Spirit fell? You see, the Holy Spirit always is supposed to be the thing that inhabits the temple. 
when the dedication of the temple, the Holy Spirit came down and filled the temple and the tabernacle and the Holy Spirit actually breathed through the writers of this book to make this book. And God has allowed His character to be given over to faulty human beings and He even gave them the freedom to use their own experiences and their own language, their own unique words identified to them as a person because the unique character of every writer comes through. He did not dictate these words. The Holy Spirit in the writer helped the writer to discover the right way to say it. God involves us in the process in ways that we can hardly imagine. This poor woman and Peter, the writers of the Bible, were all temples of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, great things begin to happen. Perhaps you've noticed that over the last several months I've been trying to talk about spirituality. And I've been trying to explore a little bit about how is it that human people who are sinful can become spiritual people. And by the spiritual people, I mean people that are in, the Holy Spirit is in them. And they are living and doing what the Holy Spirit in them tells them to do. And that is such an amazing thing. <laughs> he had 12 and then he had 70 and they went out and they conquered the world. Priests that were resistant, Levites that were resistant, came over and gave their all to the Christian church when the Holy Spirit came in. So often we try and try and try to do it ourselves. So listen to this. So often when we read the Bible, we only read it with our minds. And the Holy Spirit isn't speaking through those words to us. We simply have to sort of get to the place where God breaks us away from our, our dependence and our, our habitual patterns of trusting in self. And allow the Holy Spirit to take over more and more, completely inhabit us. We're afraid of that in the Seventh-day Adventist Church a little bit, aren't we? We're afraid that it might make us Pentecostals. We're thinking of that maybe uh, something other than a Holy Spirit will come in to our lives. But what a horrible price we pay by our fear of that, to also close the door to the Holy Spirit. God really wants a church in the last days to do mighty things that really believes that great things are possible, that goes out and just makes amazing things, not only in what they do, but who they are. Huh. At our study over at Willits last night, we talked about some interesting things. And one of the things we mentioned is about people who have made that kind of an impression upon you. And I remember Richard Wormbrandt. When I was a kid, he was a Christian minister who was behind the Iron Curtain and he was punished, spent half of his years in jail. 
uh, terrible things were done to him. He was deprived of fellowship from his wife all those years, from being with his son and his children during all of those years. And he, all he had in jail was just him and God. Because you see, God can't be put out behind those bars, can he? And Richard Wormbrandt found the Lord in a very powerful way. And he wrote these very moving uh, books. And he, you know, the Spirit of God was in those books in such a powerful way. And I, I remember reading some of those books. And then I re- student body at PUC invited Richard Wormbrandt to come and speak to them when I was in the student body there. And I remember he walked into a house where we were meeting with him prior to his presentation. And he walked right by me and he went, this is up in Angwin, to a great big picture window that opened out over the valley. And this big man, he's bigger than me. And he walked over to that glass and he just started weeping. For so many years he had not seen the out of doors, let alone such beautiful surroundings, let alone birds singing. And he just started crying. And so often in my life, I have had so many wonderful blessings of the Lord and I just take them for granted. This man was deeply... You see, when the Holy Spirit comes in, you feel things really deeply, as I did on that road in Maui. Really powerful. And then he went and he presented a presentation. Now, these were students that are, you know, these are Christian kids. And he was supposed to have, I think, an hour, hour and a half presentation to the students at PUC, the college students. And then there was going to be an organ concert. And it was time for the organ concert, not a student moved. They realized they were in the presence of a man in which the Holy Spirit dwelled. He was not an Adventist. And yet, when he spoke to them, it wasn't like normal words. It was like these words just went right into your heart and resonated like God did to me on that road that day. And somehow truth was just taking over. My life was being reformed and I was being changed. And it's not just a change, it's a lifetime change. That's what we need, folks. I want us all to spend more time waiting upon the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, don't leave until the Holy Spirit falls. You know, we're not ever going to see Jesus come without the falling of the Holy Spirit. That has to proceed. And the great things that they did, we will do by God's power. Because somehow we are tired of ourselves and we let it all go. And the Holy Spirit is enough. More than satisfying. Oh, well, I've got a third of the way through my sermon notes. Never know what the Lord's going to do. Father in heaven, here we are again on your Sabbath day in our church service. And we have for a few moments thought about the tragedy of what's taking place in our lives today about how we become accustomed with something far less than what we, in your mind, are destined for. And we've almost in some ways accepted that. 
because we don't have your spirit and we don't know how powerful that spirit is and we're not sure that it's ever going to reside in us. And yet I pray, Father, for us, for all of us. I think we're called for great things and we are not called to do it on our own power. But your Holy Spirit is waiting, just like it took me so long to let go and recognize that I couldn't do it. For one reason or another, we are just putting you off. And we need to stop that. There's only pain to be found there. And I just pray for this church and each member. I pray for all of the our church churches here in this town and churches in, across the world. This world is getting to be a very bad place in so many ways. We really know we need to go home, but we can't go there unless you come in and abide in us with all the power and all the glory that you bring. Make that happen, Lord. Make it happen quickly. In Jesus' name I pray.